Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture story. Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining. And today we're going to welcome Donnie Weinstein. He is going to be fascinating as he talks to us about building communities. He's currently a senior director at Kaltura, which is an Israeli company. And uh, he drives the leadership in building business value of community. Um, and he's done this in B2B and B2C companies. And prior to that, he's held uh, program management, product development, business development roles. And the key point to this is it's all been global. So it's going to be fascinating to talk to him today. And thank you so much for joining. So Donnie, hi, how are you today? I'm doing well, Wendy. Appreciate it uh, having me on your show and uh, pleasure to uh, connect with you. Yeah, so I, I, I'm so excited to talk to you about this community development thing because it's such a hot topic in, in marketing right now where everybody's trying to develop a community, develop a community. So it's not just pushing information out, but engaging. So can you really talk to us about where this evolution of building a community came in from and why it's so hot right now? Absolutely. <clears throat> so it, it, first of all, it's exciting to see, uh, you know, sort of the, the renaissance happening again. It seems to happen every 10 years or so. And, you know, the reality is, is that community is not really a new phenomena or a new topic. Um, you know, this, this, the nature of, of engaging with your customers, engaging with your trusted peers, engaging with people that you know, has been going on for generations. So I like to use the analogy when I am you know, pitching to either prospects or to companies or even top management who really don't, who, who are trying to understand, well, what's this whole phenomenon community about? Uh, I kind of go back to, you know, the neighborhood barbecue uh, kids baseball game or soccer game or, or conversations at the dinner table. So for example, uh, our parents and grandparents, if they had a problem with their car, they weren't going to call Ford on their first, uh, first try. They were going to go down the street to their friend or neighbor, John, or new, new cars, or if they had a problem with their, <clears throat> their G or Phillips uh, refrigerator. They were going to call, you know, their neighbor, Susan, who knew appliances and, and kind of get their trusted opinion. And so, you know, the community really is about how do you bring uh, your customers and people who are passionate about a topic or your brand into the fold, into a conversation. And that's happening, you know, certainly, as I said, it's happened pre-internet, but, you know, with the evolution of the internet, it certainly uh, has evolved quite strongly over the last 20, 30 years. <clears throat> and different brands have been using it uh, in a variety of ways. But it's really that intersection of how you marry the online experience and also the offline experience through user groups and meetups uh, and even annual uh, conferences. And so you know, I've had the fortune of being in this space for quite a bit of time, uh, going back to my HP days and then more recently at Domo. But I mean, companies like Microsoft have been doing 
global communities for for more than 20 years. Uh, you know, Dell has been doing this for a very long time with the, the their idea storm um, <clears throat> phenomena. And I think right now what, what people are realizing, especially with everything going virtual, is that we really need to stay connected. And this is just driving the awareness of how valuable uh, this uh, opportunity is for managing the conversation around your brand and around your product. So what are best practices for building a community? Well, I know we only have an hour or so, or even 90 minutes, we've having all the conversation about this. But, uh, <clears throat> well, let me tell you, you know, what I'm thinking about. Maybe I'll narrow down is I see so many people now trying to push me into their uh, groups on LinkedIn or their groups mm -hmm. on Facebook. And then, you know, I'll join them because I'm interested in the topic. But then the organizer is the only one pushing content there and they're not getting the engagement back. And so I read some of the stuff, but mm -hmm. there's other companies that get, you know, they start it, but then all the participants are active. So what is that, that difference between one where Mm -hmm. Like the engagement just flops and the others where the engagement just seems to take off. Sure. Well, <clears throat> and it's, it's a fine balance. And I think that, uh, you know, right now community is a, it's a very hot buzzword and a lot, a lot of people are simply, you know, jumping on the bandwagon without truly understanding what they're, what they're doing. Um, you know, from, from where I see it, it's simply, for example, like coming into Peltura now, uh, the company's been around for 14, 15 years. They've got a great install base of more than a thousand great logos. Uh, a lot of passionate customers. There's really no one, no central place to to crowdsource that uh, particular uh, engagement. And so, what I typically like to do, and these are best practices, is you need to go and work and find out where this conversation's already happening. So, you talk to your support people. What are the <clears throat> what's the nature of the conversations that are happening today with our customers? You talk to your salespeople, your customer success managers. And then, of course, you talk to customers that they suggest to go talk to, the people that have been using your product and been engaged with you for quite a period of time to find out you know, what, the, what they want to talk about. Um, and, so in order to, and so as you go through that process, you can then put together a strategy as far as the nature of how you want to build out uh, community. Now, you know, from a brand perspective, <clears throat> um, it's always best practice to own the asset that you're managing. So for example, if we were to open up a Facebook group, um, you know, you could brand it your own company, that's fine. But the, the reality is, is that Facebook owns that group and they could decide unilaterally you know, tomorrow to turn the group off. So there's a lot of risk there. And there's also the fact that you don't control the asset and don't control the data as opposed to going and licensing a, you know, an enterprise level SaaS solution. And there's quite a few good players out there that have a great product offering where you can build a branded experience, you own the experience, you control who can come in and come out of the community um, and, and really curate your most passionate customers to help create that experience. And so the analogy that I love to use is that it's, it's like you're creating a cafe, a branded cafe where you're inviting your customers and your prospects and your employees to sit down and have a conversation about your brand. And it can cover everything from, you know, marketing to sales, to support, to content, to product roadmap and engineering, um, and just, you know, meeting up with you know, general networking across the company as well as with uh, your customer base. And so you want to make sure that that place is a welcoming place. It's, a, it's an opportunity for great conversation and dialogue and, and for engagement. Um, so, 
that's sort of a very high level how you how I go how I go about thinking about it. And at the same time, you don't want to boil the ocean. You need to start small. Meaning, you know, there could be 20 or 30, 40 different types of topics that maybe discussed already today across support or even with your sales folks. But initially, when you're getting started, you need to have a narrow focus on, you know, really several, what I would call key rooms. You sort of have a gateway to get into the community, which is very general. And then maybe there's a couple of big rooms that focus on some of the big verticals. And as you get things going, if you go through a beta period, you kind of start to curate the conversation and let the customer drive what that conversation should look, should look like. Because at the end of the day, the customer is the one who is determining what should be talked about and not necessarily uh, the company. And so you want to help create an environment where they feel comfortable uh, creating content and driving content. And then you can augment that with your internal resources to supplement and augment and have it balanced uh, content curation from both the customer side as well as with uh, the company. You know, the nature of communities, or at least online communities, the vast majority of people are never going to engage. You know, 90% of, anywhere from 70 to 90% of the people that come to online communities uh, are what we call lurkers or browsers. They are, you know, searching Google or a search engine, and they are searching for, for questions and answers or content or conversations about a specific topic about your brand. And they'll go and read it, and they'll move on. Um, you know, roughly a third, as much as a third of the customers will be what I would call occasional. They have, you know, light engagement. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll sign in regularly, but they'll maybe chime in once a month, several times a quarter. And then you kind of peel back the end of one more layer and you have really your power users. And so these are the people that are what we people typically call your super users or your super fans. And these are the folks that are very passionate about the topic or the brand, but they also are looking for recognition of their knowledge. And in good communities, you always have, or you will likely have a, an element of, uh, of gamification. Um, and this allows for competition in the community to really showcase who are the, the top players and biggest contributors who are you know, providing content, uh, providing answers to questions, who are driving conversation. And these are the folks that you really want to be identifying early on and even curating over time because these are the same people that are going to be stepping up to speak at user groups and your conferences and webinars and really showcase their knowledge. And in, and in turn, you get to get, give them recognition as being leaders on your leaderboards, to be the king, king or queen of the community. Um, but also, it's especially in a B2B world, um, many of these folks are doing you know, the, the knowledge that they're gaining about your product, your brand is very much related to their job. And so it's important for them to showcase uh, their level of knowledge so that they can have that on their LinkedIn profile and help them potentially get a, you know, promotion or even a new job somewhere else. Okay. There was so much information there. Let's go back and, and dice this up a little bit more for readers or people who are interested in building a community. So you said something really interesting to me, that Facebook owns the groups and the content if you started there. So you can license enterprise you know, SaaS solution. Mm -hmm. And now that makes a lot more sense for, like, for some of the larger communities that I'm in. But it gives me right. one more place to log into. 
-hmm. you know, so I've got a bunch of different platforms and trying to keep up with them is really hard. And if you're a large company, you're going to hire someone like you that really Mm -hmm. can put together a strategy and how you're going to figure out how to drive it. Now, if you're a small or a mid-sized company where you may not have somebody dedicated to do that, and you're not going out to get a platform, do you use a Facebook or what do you, what do you recommend for companies there? Sure. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're a small startup um, and you're in the early, early stages of building out your customer base and you don't have necessarily, uh, you know, a six-figure budget to spend on, a, on an enterprise SaaS solution, uh, it doesn't mean that Facebook is not necessarily the answer or even a Slack channel for that matter, there are free versions of Slack. The challenge is simply, you know, you want to be able to own the conversation and the data and, and, and mitigate the risk of that uh, content going away. And so I was kind of, kind of highlighting the fact that, again, with, you know, Facebook group, that, that risk is there. Even with Slack, the free version, after you reach 10,000 messages, those old messages go away. So it's sort of like a recycle bin. So conversations that happened three months ago in Slack, you're no, you're no longer going to see unless you go to the paid version. So there's certainly ways to, you know, I think those are what, what I would call starter kits to get kind of your, your core base uh, out there. Um, and and then, then, of course, there also, there's a, a, there are quite a, there's a huge variety of uh, platforms that are out there that are, you know, some of them are, are simpler and maybe, maybe more affordable. Um, you know, that allows smaller companies to let's say get started into an environment that they potentially, uh, <clears throat> you know, can own. And there's actually quite a number of players that are coming into the space, especially in the last uh, year, you know, year or two. What are some of those players? You share any offhand? Well, there's, there's quite a few. And, and, you know, I would say this, there's, um, <clears throat> You know, I'm going to call out a couple of uh, really good resources that um, you know people can go look at. So one is, uh, you know, Richard Millington is a thought leader in, in the community world, and uh, his company is uh, called Feverbee. It's called Feverbee.com, and they've got a um, <clears throat> they actually have a whole portfolio of of platform uh, reviews of different shapes and sizes. Uh, you know, that's number one. There's another one. Um, I think it's called the Community Club, which is fairly new. And, you know, they really are, they're actually, they're actually building out their own, <clears throat> excuse me, they're building out their own platform um, right now. But also, in, in addition to that, they are um, highlighting all of the different new assets that are out there uh, to procure of, of, of different shapes and sizes. Okay, so those are some of the options depending on how much you're budgeting or building it out. Okay, then you talk about well, taking it. Go ahead. My point is simply that both both of these uh, properties have uh, resources there that can help someone to do a lot of research as far as the different uh, players in the market today. So Fever has a lot of reviews of of community platforms and also community club is actually t- taking an inventory of everything that's, that's also out there. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, beyond that, uh, I'll do a shout out to, you know, two close friends of mine that are in the space, very much leaders in, in the community world, Brian Oblinger and uh, Erica cool. And they've got an amazing uh, podcast called uh, in before the lock. And so that's uh, say that again in before <clears throat> the lock. It's called In Before the Lock, and the URL is ib4, the number four, tl.fm. 
and they have been running a podcast for the last year, about the last year or so, uh, really on community management and leadership. <clears throat> and as part of their podcast, they've really created a, a wealth of tremendous resources for community builders and managers to, uh, you know, look at, you know, soup to nuts. How do you get things going? How do you get started? A launch program, uh, assessing platforms and so forth. You know, Brian has got more than 20 years in this space. Um, yeah, he worked at Lithium for many years back in the early days, and then he's been a, a you know, leader in, in community at a number of startups, and now he's a full-time consultant. And Erica Cool uh, was really the, was the force behind the Trailblazer community at Salesforce. So she was there for 17 years, had a really tremendous career, and um, you know the two of them together have a, a podcast that uh, is really incredible value for for community thought leaders. So if you want to check it out, it's I, IB the number four TL.FM. Okay, thank you. I'll definitely check that out. That sounds interesting. All right, so since it is the Global Marketing Show, we do have to talk about how do you build a community globally when you've got all the different languages in there? Absolutely. So again, I think it goes back to <clears throat> understanding your customer base. You know, where, where are they located? How are they engaging? What's the nature of the languages that they are engaging in today, both, you know, consuming content as well as, uh, you know, verbally or writing and speaking the language. Uh, and, you know, what you, what you need to do is understand, okay, what's the, what's the current environment look like that you're in? So for example, when I was at HP, I had a very long career there after graduate school and was fortunate enough to be on the ground floor of a brand new social care team. And so when we went to build out, uh, you know, these, global forums and global communities back in 2008, uh, we initially started with English, but we knew we were gonna go multi-language. And so, you know, HP clearly had a, an incredibly large install base, especially in the consumer world. So printers, PCs, tablets, phones. Um, <clears throat> our website at that time, I think we had north of 24 or 28 languages, uh, local, fully localized for our support website. Uh, clearly we had customers around the globe in, in, in many, many, many countries. I mean, I want to say more than, more than 150, maybe 170 countries at the time. And so we had to make a determination, you know, what, what, what languages are we going to have a dedicated community in? Uh, and so we ended up uh, launching seven language communities to serve our global audience over a 15-month period. And that was in English, Spanish, Portuguese, French, German, simplified Chinese, uh, and Korean. Um, <clears throat> I think the criteria you need to look at is uh, you need to have enough customers that are having the need in that language to sustain a community. You can't just have a community of one or two people. You need to have a critical mass in order to manage a conversation and to create content. And so how many, how many people would be a critical mass? So there's really two ways to look at it because you've got to go back to that 99-1 model, meaning you've got the people that are browsing, the, so, the, so the traffic that's coming in and consuming the, the content in that language. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, of course, the people that are creating and engaging. And so I think, uh, you, you know, from my perspective, you need to have at least 500 people that are going to be uh, engaging on some regular basis to, to get things going and sustain it over, over a period of time. It can't so 500 just be engaging. So are those the people that are the power users or 500 people and then it divides out into 70% lurkers, the a third occasional, and then your, your handful of power. 
No, I would say 500 would be the occasional engagers. And maybe of that is probably 50 that would be, uh, you know, more, more so the power users. And for you can probably extrapolate okay. from that, there's several thousand that would be, you know, consuming the content uh, in that language. Now, in the HP time, when we did, when we did that, we had dedicated servers for experiences for each uh, language, meaning you had a, a separate login for English, a separate one for French, a separate one for German. Uh, and so forth. And that was <clears throat> done deliberately at that time. Now, if I pass forward to my Domo world, um, you know, this was a, a you know, startup. Uh, it had about similar to Kaltur, a lot of about a thousand customers in total. Uh, not Certainly not the global footprint that HP had. The, the product itself was localized in maybe half a dozen languages from a, a user, user interface perspective. Uh, and we had a lot of data as far as how how customers were consuming the product or using the product and very few were choosing to localize it in their, in their own language. So for example, we had a very strong presence in Japan uh, with Domo. Domo actually is slang for thanks in Japanese. It's from the, uh, the word Domo Arigato. Uh, our founder, Josh James is very passionate about Japan. He did a mission there uh, when he was much younger. He's fluent in Japanese. And so <clears throat> he came up with the name Domo. And so, you know, Jap Japan or Japanese, I should say, was the only language that we um, was being the default language by the users in or the customers in, in Japan where, you know, our friends, German, Spanish and um, simplified Chinese customers, the, the admins had the Dome experience defaulting in English. So the numbers were very, very small, very low, less than 100 customers because the customer could actually manually change the um the, their own ui if they wanted to but the default was in was in english and so the justification to have a dedicated uh language and community wasn't there yet we were kind of thinking about it longer term but there are ways to serve your international audience with um you know ai and with localization tools so you know google has a uh, a translate widget that can be easily applied to any web property and so what we did was we had a we had fully localized Japan Japanese for the community because it was justified, and we had we had English for everybody else. But we also added this widget to serve the other languages that we had localized in product, so that customers could select those on any given page, and it would auto translate that particular page. Um, so that served basically the customers to consume the content in the language of their choice. It didn't necessarily help them from an engagement perspective. Uh, because they would then have to create the content in their own language and not necessarily have the, you know, all of the out-of-box tools you would have in a fully localized uh, community. Okay, so it's interesting. So if you're starting a community, you've got to have several thousand people that you think you're going to pull into it. Then it breaks down to the users. If you've got that in a language, then you localize it. Until then, keep it in English with the Google mm -hmm. widget till you get enough people, and then mm -hmm. you could start localizing a community there. Right, because again, okay. it's like any operation. You, you, you know, you've got costs associated with uh, serving that language, not only on the IT side, but also from personnel. You, you know, moderate moderators that, that understand the language that can engage in that language. Uh, there's you know content creation, there's localization costs, and so you know if you're going to serve ten customers. Uh, that's likely not going to justify the cost to um, <clears throat> have a fully localized experience. But you know, I think once you get to several thousand that are consuming the content, then you start getting into numbers that make more sense. Um, 
and so on. And so if you've got an English room that you're using the Google Translate widget in and mm -hmm. you know eventually you're going to break it off, how do you know when you've gotten to several thousand or is that you're looking at the business case where how many customers do you have in that language or in that country? <clears throat> yeah, so I think you go back to your you know, what, what does your footprint look like uh, in that country and or language? So, I mean, our, and, and clearly working with your customer success team in, in EMEA and in Asia Pacific, you're going to get a clear indication of, okay, how big is our business in Germany or in France or in Japan? Uh, and you can, we can also look at our actual product usage. How many customers are using our product in that particular country and or language? And you're also going to hear from your customers. You're going to say, I would really love to have this experience fully localized. And this is why. So it's really, you know, again, being in touch with your, your customer base to um, have a pulse of when is, you know, what, what are the customers telling you as far as the need? Uh, you'll also hear from, you know, they're, they're, <clears throat> the support team is also going to be a typically a good leading indicator for support in a particular language. Mm -hmm. um, and then that'll have, you'll have enough data to then to make it a business case for, you know, adding and up and teeing up another uh, language. You know, so in the interim, you know, having the AI solutions is um, sort of, it, it mitigates the need for the short term, but it's not, a, not necessarily a long-term solution. Okay, so jumping topics, you've worked in a lot of global companies or in, in global roles. So what are some of the biggest challenges you've seen with growing cross countries? Oh yeah, so, I think first and foremost, um, <clears throat> most people don't understand the fact that, um, you know, as you start to cross borders, um, not everybody thinks the same way. Not mm -hmm. everybody perceives things to be the same way. Not everybody, you know, one solution you may create for a North America, U.S. market may not play very well in another market. So. Actually, a great example of this. So my early days at HP, I was a global product manager in a very, very profitable, you know, accelerating growth uh, business in network printing. And so this is when printers were going from everybody having a printer on their desktop to everyone needing to share a printer in, in an office space. And this was uh, the product, the sub-brand was called JetDirect. And um, <clears throat> this is right out of grad school. And, you know, I got to do a, a ton of traveling all over Europe. I was doing what we call new, new product introduction roadshows. Uh, and so I got to present in London and in Amsterdam and Stuttgart. And we had this amazing campaign that our team, our creative team had come up with. Um, they had sort of this 1950s style uh, brochure, uh, sort of like a diner. And it was essentially, you know, like you would go to get a, a hamburger. You would say, would you like some fries with that? Well, our analogy was, you know, would you like a, would you like a print server with your, with your printer, with your laser jet or with your ink jet? And so when we got to the Czech Republic, we, we initially put up these slides that, that had this analogy. And when we got to the, the event and we presented this initially, the Czech customers didn't get it. And we had to do a sidebar with the, the local team to figure out why. They, did, they just didn't get the, the burger fry analogy. And so literally we had to adjust on the fly. We, we changed it to, uh, you know, check meatballs and beer and then they got it <laughs> oh that's fantastic 
Right. And it makes sense because burgers and fries are such an American thing and mm -hmm. eat with your hands. Yeah. But it right. was meatball and, so, and beers in the Czech Republic. Huh. So that's certainly, you know, that's just one example, but it's really, you need to understand um, that there are, there are cultural norms and expectations about how people behave and think there are, you know, language guidelines. There are, you know, certainly, uh, you know, another great example is, you know, the, the Chevy car Nova was a great selling car, but guess what? When they went to South America, I mean, Nova means Nova doesn't go. That's not going to play very well in a Spanish market. Yeah, yeah, that one's an interesting one because I've actually heard that it's a, um, um, a rumor that it didn't go, um, that, it, that, that they didn't actually do that. And then Nova did sell once because Nova is two words, mm -hmm. but Nova right. is one. But the one that didn't go was the, the Matador, which means killer mm -hmm. in Mexico. So that one had some problems. So uh, it is, but it, I mean, the story mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense because you've got to be careful of what, what it means. Yeah. Exactly. So, so if we take a step back, I mean, I think the, the way for me, it's, it's you really need to have people on the, on the ground there that uh, understand the cultural language. And before you begin to put together a marketing campaign or a new community, it's really working with that team to understand uh, the pulse of the market, you know, the, the customer expectations, what's going to, you know, help them trigger, you know, what's going to uh, enable success in this particular market. And even when we did a community, we, we were launching in um, these you know, variety of different languages, we definitely saw differences between, let's say, the, the, the Western cultures, behave, they behave very similarly to English. So French and German, Spanish and Portuguese, we saw those numbers and the behaviors were quite uh, similar. However, uh, simplified Ch Chinese and Korean, they behave very differently. And part of it is culture. So, <clears throat> um, you know, the Asian cultures in, in, in general, it's not true for all of them, but they, in, in an online setting, they're less engaging or less forthcoming with their comments than, let's say, uh, you know, Americans, French, Germans, and so forth. And that was something that we had to <clears throat> adapt to over time and, and, and internalize over time as, to, as opposed to something being wrong with what we were doing. It was really more of a, uh, a cultural thing. That's fascinating. So that was when you were at HP? Yeah, this is when I was at HP. Okay, so that was a few years back. I wonder if that's different now or if that's still a cultural thing. Um, it certainly has evolved over time. I mean, I think that, uh, that, that those cultures are probably more westernized today. I mean, this is going back to you know, the late 2000s into uh, you know, 2010, 2011. Um, but even just from a, you know, HP support perspective, you know, we certainly saw those, those cultures adopting, um, you know, mobile, a mobile first strategy faster right. than other parts of the world. You know, they're using WhatsApp or our, um, you know, mobile support for, you know, for their engagement as a preference before other countries were. Right. And so did you see, so you saw a difference with the, with the engagement online. So was that when you were talking about communities or feedback or in what areas? This is, uh, it was community, but also, uh, it also, um, the way we were displaying and laying out the community, we had to uh, modify that 
a bit more for simplified Chinese and Korean relative to some of the other properties um, to help drive better engagement and make them feel you know more comfortable doing so. All right, so it goes back. So, you know, if you're working with HP and you're a huge company and you're doing your international launch, you do set up people on the ground. So you, as you talked about, to get the pulse on the market and expectations and to enable this success. Mm -hmm. Sometimes smaller companies don't have the budget to put people on the ground. Right. So is there other ways to figure out how mm -hmm. to do those things without having a team on the ground? Absolutely. So, you know, when in, even prior to graduate school, I lived in Israel for several years and I worked for a number of uh, startups and I was able to set help set up distribution for this is a 20 person company and the medical equipment uh, market. And we didn't have the resources to set up shop in, in England or Spain or Portugal. And so the, the charter really was to find distributors who could represent us on, you know, and be our feet on the street, essentially. And so in, in those situations, you're trying to find a partner in either in region and or in country that can represent you and your brand. And so you've mm -hmm. got to have, they have to have meet to the requirements of you know, being not only being able to properly represent your brand and sell your product, but also in our case, service the product. Um, and so we would go to, go to attend a lot of medical equipment shows in order to meet these vendors. Uh, make sure that they were, you know, ISO compliant uh, and that they also had the, the skill sets needed to not only service our product, but also from a relationship perspective, we felt that they would be the right, the right people to represent uh, our brand. And so you've got to leverage partners and um, distributors uh, in order to get into new markets, especially when you're a smaller, <clears throat> a smaller startup. Okay, so it's all about building those relationships that can give you the feet on the ground feel and get the feedback. Correct. Yeah, and now talk about languages, because you were talking about doing some of the translation when you were at HP, and obviously you had to do it at that company, and I assume that you're doing it at um, Kaltura too, because I see it on your website. Mm -hmm. um, so talk to me about how you handle the language translation or communications. Sure. And again, it goes back to, you know, the, the environment that trends. So, I mean, HP obviously had a, you know, we were a massive organization. I mean, the support team was, or consumer support was a very large organization at HP. And we had, as I mentioned earlier, I think 24, 28 languages already supported in our, in our website. So there was a, a very strong presence of uh, top notch translate, you know, in-house translation services and partners that we had access to uh, for, the content that we own, but in parallel, we were also working with a very strong community vendor that had, you know, very good language capabilities to, you know, for their system, because you want to be able to have, you know, an out of box, uh, what we'd call a language pack that's offering up the, all of the mouse servers, the buttons, the UI, the, the shell that's in, you know, simplified Chinese or in Korean or, in, or, you know, French, France, French, and so forth. Um, now, again, in, in a community, a lot of the content is coming from the customer or the consumer, and you have to enable the experience so that they can actually create the content. They have a, you know, a WYSIWYG or a, a, a word editor that's native to their language um, so that they can actually write and engage in that, particular, <clears throat> in, in that particular language. As you're creating the content and, and grabbing some of the solutions that come out of community, making them articles from, you know, that are certified articles from the company, then you would have your internal teams, you know, taking that and, and having the ability to 
write high quality articles in French uh, or German, or if they're in English, you know, make, take that to our translation teams or services so to do that. When you're in a smaller company, um, and like Adoma, we weren't doing that in, in, in as many languages, and that's why you have this sort of, uh, you know, AI solutions such as the Google Translate widget. Uh, but over time, as you get to that critical mass of, of serving those markets, you then need to have either in-house or external vendors that uh, can provide the, the needed services to deliver high-quality translations. So, right. So you talked about the Google widget when it was a, when you did for your community translations <clears throat> in a market <throat> that you were still growing and didn't have the mass. But what about your website or your user manuals or all that other information? Were you still using Google there when you're entering? No. So, you know, Good. We had, I was no, having we, a we, little we, bit we, of a heart attack <laughs> here. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that was just the online tip. But no, for the, the content that we owned at, at Doma, we had a, a top notch translation team. And we did, we did service uh, or provide <clears throat> support as well as uh, content in those, uh, I think it was six languages. So it was Japanese, simplified Chinese, French, German, and uh, Spanish, I believe. And so How in that case, you... we had, you know, those teams were taking our core English content and, <clears throat> and translating that, you know, again, the website material, um, the knowledge base, uh, and so forth. Oh, okay, good. So you had defined people who were giving the high quality on the product information. And then how mm -hmm. did you decide what to translate? So again, I think that's working with, um, you know, the content education teams as well as the product teams. Um, there's sort of a portfolio of, okay, if we're going to serve, if we're going to provide the, the right level of service in a given language, you know, these are, these are the things that need to get uh, fully translated. Um, and so again, that translation team was, was a key part of that, that process in getting the work done. But I think the, the broader stakeholders at, at a higher level management would help determine, okay, if we're going to serve now the, the Japanese customers, then you, you can't just be piecemeal. It's got to be everything from all the articles in our, in our knowledge base to training, to support, you know, having people that speak the language that can uh, provide chat support, email support, whatever we were doing, you know, in that language. So having, you know, support engineers that, that are fluent in Japanese, as an example. Um, it can't just be one element. So it's going full on or not going, not doing it at all. You can't just do a uh, piecemeal. You go on the community side, again, it, you're not providing a full localization. You're simply giving a, a, a sort of a Band-Aid to increase consumption of the content in a, in a local language. But that's not, uh, that is not a long-term solution. That's really just more to help drive more, more consumption of the content that's out there that's being generated in other languages, mainly in English. And over time, as you get scale, you can then provide the, the full experience. I, I love, I love what you're saying here. This, these are such good points. Um, it, and, you know, my book, The Language of Global Marketing, is coming out. And that's mm -hmm. what I'm hearing from a lot of people like you that have gone through this, is that you can't just do it piecemeal. You have to have a strategy about what you're mm -hmm. doing. And you think through the buyer's journey is everything from when they first hear about you to when they become a user, what are they going to need? Um, mm -hmm. But then there are things like the community where you don't, like at what point do you begin translating it? You can leverage some of the lower quality um, technology solutions until you determine it's big enough and it's going to have an effect on you. So that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I love 
hearing that, that that's the process um, that you went through. Um, and it's, it's so nice to clarify that for people who might be starting to think about that. So you've worked for U.S. companies that went international. You work for an Israeli company that went international. Now you're in the U.S. working for a company that happens to be an Israeli company um, again, right? It's founded there. And <clears throat> in yeah, although the difference this time is they're actually headquartered in, in New York, uh, they're registered in Delaware, but the DNA of the company is very much Israeli. So they're founded by some very, um, <clears throat> you know, Israeli founders. Uh, all of our R&D and engineering is in Tel Aviv. Uh, company HQ is in Manhattan. And we have a global, sorry, we have regional offices in London for the European market, as well as Singapore for uh, Asia Pacific. So... If you start a company out of Tel Aviv or you come from a country that's smaller, you know you have to go international if you really want to grow. So many companies start mm -hmm. in the U.S. thinking, oh, we'll just go after the U.S. market, and they're not even thinking international until it's too late and they've developed their technology wrong. Mm -hmm. what, are, what is the difference in the culture? You know, can you feel a difference on how people are thinking about company growth and international from the start? Yeah, um, I think it just goes back to having a you know that global perspective. Um, and again, it doesn't mean that not all companies that have a U.S. focus initially don't think that way. But <clears throat> especially today, with the technology that's out there, I mean, really, the markets are are boundless. And the reach is boundless. So, <clears throat> you know, you can certainly start out in English if you're a U.S.-based company, uh, but you could have customers that are anywhere in the world. Um, but I think having that, you know, global view, you know, this multi-market, multi-language view, I think it provides an edge for those people that are running those businesses because, it really reiterates in my mind, uh, there isn't a one size fits all solution to reach global markets. You've got to, you know, modify and iterate and adapt in order to get the most out of every market you're trying to serve. So again, it depends on where you are in your journey. And if you're an accelerator or a startup and you've got to, you know, get, have you got revenue goals and so forth, then, you know, you're going to be very focused on generating revenue and ARR in order to get to scale. And that may mean, not doing other things in the short term, but you know, longer term, in order to scale, you've got to have the building blocks in place in order to serve uh, the global market. So one thing that's certainly attracting me to Kaltura is that you know, they've been around for a long time and they've grown organically at a, at a pretty healthy rate. But now with, uh, with things going you know, virtual, you know, they're, they're, video, they're, they're really a leader in the video SaaS solution space with big, big presence in higher education, as well as in the enterprise space, as far as, you know, video collaboration and webinars uh, and online events. Um, you know, the reality is that the scaling that in order to scale properly, you've got to have <clears throat> the, you know, the pieces in place for things like support and multi-language, you know, having a global community, having, you know, high quality uh, content education teams and training that serve not only a, a U.S. English market, but can do so in multi-language, multi-market uh, environments. And so how did, okay, so tell me a little bit more about Kaltura, because it's really a cool company that I think the listeners would, you know, should definitely check out. It's spelled K-A-L, 
T-U-R-A. And if you go to Kaltura.com, you can find out more about it. So who, mm -hmm. what does a, what does one of your clients do with the platform? Sure. So we, <clears throat> we have a very strong presence in, in higher education, um, you know, very, very high market share. I mean, the vast majority of, the, of universities and higher education uh, organizations in North America and, and EMEA, and in some cases in Asia Pacific, are using our platform for online education. Uh, we integrate extremely well with other familiar, you know, other tools such as Canvas and Blackboard and even Zoom and, and, and team meetings uh, to, to allow for uh, education. So, you know, taking online courses in university, even K through 12, excuse me, real time, you know, webinars, um, but even, you know, one-on-one -on -one meetings like we're doing right now, we have point products that are analogous to a Zoom meeting or a ring meeting and so forth. So it's really, you know, one-on-one -on -one collaboration as well as one to, you know, having an event with several hundred people in a virtual classroom with 500 people in one setting where the, a you know, professor can teach a course and it can be done real time. The, the session can be recorded and then shared out uh, and put into those universities uh, LMSs or the language management uh, system. So that's sort of one very big vertical for us. The other is uh, enterprise. And so a lot of great logos are using it for internal collaboration for, you know, CEO communications and town halls and webinars and training. Um, you know, our platform is, is all SaaS. It's all in the cloud. Uh, it's open, it's um, open source. We have an open source API. So we actually have quite a few very big logos that are actually white labeling our product and having it branded internally for their, their purposes. Um, but also the, the strength of it really is the, the flexibility and the breadth where it's not just a, a single product, it's really a portfolio of an end-to-end, -end, what we call video SaaS uh, platform. And there really aren't many other players out there that do the, the full suite of what we uh, are doing. And then more recently, we got into the online event space uh, in the last year, especially with COVID, where we took, the, you know, man, you know, management saw the opportunity to say, you know what, well, we have all the pieces in play. Let's put it all together for uh, an online conference. And I can't share the, the name of the brand, but um, the, the, the reality is, is that we, <clears throat> we went for an RFP and we won the RFP last year. And we were basically the, uh, the, the, the back end for the largest online user conference in the world that took place in December that had more than 600,000 attendees. Wow. Um, that's fantastic. So it's kind of neat. You can have your Zoom, you can have your um, online events platform, you can have your, like your Vidyard where you wanna record a video and send a message to somebody. Uh, mm -hmm. You can do, it says video quizzes on here too. So it's a it's a really neat platform and i love that you built it thinking global now do you if somebody does an event like you just had that one with six thousand attend six hundred thousand attendees mm -hmm. do you provide interpreters on there that's a great question um you know i'm gonna have to find that out yeah We've got parallel platforms that you could have people using if you don't have it. Otherwise, if you do, we've got people that could serve as mm -hmm. interpreters. So I was sure. curious because that is definitely something that you could, that the online events are definitely using and requesting. 
Yeah, I think that capability is there. I'm sure I remember if they did it for this particular <clears throat> particular event. But I mean, you've got you know your main stage, you've got your um, you know, your breakout sessions, you've got your vendor boots, and the beauty of it doing it online, you know, like you would go to a physical conference. Well, at the conference is over, everything gets torn down. People go home, and you're left with someone's business card. In this case, the rooms could theoretically stay open for a period of time weeks or months and the engagement can continue in those rooms with the people that came into the session or came by your booth. So the opportunity for collaboration and engagement is really very rich. And that actually ties very well to the work that I'm doing longer term with, uh, with community. Cause then you could build, people can build their community right on the same platform where they did everything. Right. Or they could be on, you know, as they become a customer or if they are an existing customer, they can then offer, you know, we can all, you know, um, you know, onboard them from the event or migrate them from the event and have the, the conversation continue in, in the core community. Right. Because one thing I'm finding with community is that I'm on Clubhouse. And if I talk mm -hmm. to somebody really interesting a couple days prior and then something comes up and I want to reach out to them again, I've lost who they are. So they're in mm -hmm. my community. I may have reached out on Instagram, but I can't remember who their name was or their mm -hmm. interaction. So I'm struggling. I'm trying to do little things like here, I'm keeping a notebook of who was in rooms of who I might want to do so I can go back mm -hmm. and do that, but it's not efficient. So I like sure. that you're, you're thinking about that as to how, how you can find people again. <laughs> Yeah. So tell me more about you as we come into the, you know, towards the end of the conference. Tell me, you know, let's start with what's your favorite foreign word? So I think my favorite foreign word is, uh, it's yalla, which <clears throat> I think it's actually Arabic, but it's very commonly used uh, in Israel as well as in uh, Arab countries. And it's a very simple word. It means let's go. Um, I mean, if you're hanging out with somebody and you're about to go somewhere and then someone just say, you know, if you're, if you're on the phone and you're, you're going to go meet up then you know, you, you would say yalla. And it's kind of a fun word. It kind of is, you know, let's go or let's roll. And it's very transparent across uh, both, <clears throat> you know, the, the Israel, Israeli culture as well as in the, the Arab world. <laughs> I love that. And you know what I can't stop thinking about is yalla yolo. <laughs> You only live uh -huh. once. <laughs> Let's go. You only live once. Yala YOLO. <laughs> right. <clears throat> so I may have to start uh, using that one. Yeah. So you've lived in the United States. You've lived in Israel. Have you lived anywhere else? I know you've traveled a ton. Yeah. So I've had the opportunity to study abroad um, at Tel Aviv University in, as an undergraduate first semester, but also uh, in the Netherlands at the Rotterdam School of Management during graduate school. So I did an opportunity to live in, in Holland for four months. Um, <clears throat> and then, of course, you know, with my just extensive travel, you know, before and after graduate school and even after the semester abroad. So I backpacked Europe three times. Uh, and then with my HP career in particular, I got to really, you know, travel a ton. So we were doing again these these MPI roadshows, you know, all over the world. So not only in, in EMEA, but also in in Beijing and Shanghai and Tokyo and Singapore, um, Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo. And um <clears throat> but yeah, I grew up in New York, um, fluent in Hebrew. I've got some basic Spanish German from studying in school, but also spending time either in Spain or Mexico and also uh, in Germany. 
especially when I was with the Israeli company, a lot of the medical equipment uh, shows were, were, were in Germany. So I was able to pick up that language uh, reasonably well. Um, and then, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, yeah, just, you know, been quite a lot of places. Yeah, you sure have. Because when we talked earlier, you mentioned Shanghai and Singapore, Australia and countries in South America. So what advice would you give to people on getting along, doing business internationally? Like what's made you so successful in being able to build communities across cultures? So I think, you know, one of the, the biggest opportunities anybody has, I think, in their life is to actually travel or, or live in another country, especially in a, in a, in a place that has a, a different language than you are used to, and taking the time to immerse yourself uh, in that language. Um, I think that's incredibly invaluable to anybody. I think it helps you develop as a person, but also it gives you, it gives you the ability to think differently. <clears throat> and to potentially absorb another perspective. Um, and I think as you learn languages, uh, I think that's really the best way to go about doing so is to, to spend time in that, in that particular country because I think that's really where the light bulb goes on and you start to really internalize how the language works and how to really speak it as opposed to just doing so uh, in a classroom. And as you add that capability to your portfolio, I think it allows you to, um, <clears throat> again, have a manage a conversation, which at the end of the day, doing business is about engagement. It's about building relationships. It's about having a conversation with a potential customer or business partner. And it's about, it's about the relationship building. And that's really what I do in communities, building relationships and connecting people. So having that mindset of understanding how people think and what words mean and, and what, um, what their nuances are, I think that translates dramatically into enabling one to get into a new market and to do business in that particular part of the world. What's your, what's been your favorite, that's fabulous advice, so I don't want to skip over that. I love that, language and travel. What's been um, your favorite vacation? Wow. Uh, I mean, you know, we love going to Israel. You know, my, my dad is from there. We've got a lot of family there. And so going there, it's, it's sort of like going home. And that's always been a, a wonderful place, uh, you know, to go. Um, but then, you know, beyond that, uh, we had a wonderful family vacation to Australia several years ago with my three kids and my wife. And so that's Australia's an amazing place. And uh, I think back in my HP days, one of the coolest places I got to go on business, I took my wife for her birthday. We had a uh, there was a, a company that HP had acquired Verifone back in the day, and they were a, uh, a startup. They weren't a full-fledged division yet, and they had this wild customer event uh, in the Spanish Canary Islands on the island of Tenerife, and so that was uh, that was a very cool experience. So that was a lot of fun too. Oh, that sounds fantastic! How about a crazy cross-cultural experience? So this is actually something I gave a little bit of thought to. And when I lived in, in, uh, in Tel Aviv for these, you know, when, when I was in my 20s, um, you know, one thing that pe I'm not sure everyone knows, but, you know, Tel Aviv's got an amazing nightlife, especially if you're, you know, if, if you're single and young. I mean, the, the bars and the clubs uh, and the restaurants, so it's, it's kind of like New York. They're open 24-7. And, um, 
you know, just on the outskirts of Tel Aviv, you have the city of Jaffa, which is a biblical town. Um, and it has a very big uh, Arab population and it's Arab Muslim, it's Arab Christian. And, but it's a very, the, the, the collaboration and the coexistence there is, is really uh, incredible. And so there was this little place, uh, it was really this hole in the wall, what we call it, it was, it was a hummus bar that my buddy and I knew about. And they would, be, they would open up at like four or five in the morning, uh, literally had three or four tables inside. And so that was the place we used to go to. <clears throat> if we were out late at night, we'd make our way down there. And uh, the coolest thing about it was simply that, you know, the owner knew everybody coming in uh, at, at four or five in the morning. When you go there, you'd, it'd be a few dollars for, you know, a couple of plates of hummus with vegetables and some, uh, some coffee. But it was very simple. You had this giant pot, you know, giant, I don't know, maybe 10 gallon pot of, of hummus that was made. And essentially he would stay open until it ran out. <laughs> but the neat thing about it is that all of the people going to work in the morning, the local, you know, if it was the, the early morning workers or the local police, whatever it was, you know, they'd be coming in, they'd be getting their, 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 their fix and uh, they'd be moving on. I think just the, the nature of the um, environment and the friendliness and really this neighborhood experience that really had no borders uh, really resonated with me. I love that. I love that story. And it's just so, I mean, it's so, so uniquely, you know, it captures a culture of I'm going to make a bunch of this and I'll stay open until it sells out. And that's kind of, mm -hmm. and then I'll live my life. It's not like, oh, I've got to rush around and make more and stay open later. So, oh, right. I love that. I love that. Well, any, um, any final recommendations for our listeners that you'd like to share? Seize the day. If you have the opportunity to travel or go somewhere else and hear and speak and learn another language, go for it. Don't wait for tomorrow. You only live once and life is not a guarantee. So um, seize the day. Oh, that's excellent, excellent advice. I really, really appreciate you being on today. You've given me much more clarity about communities and building that and how you think about it globally. So it's been an absolute joy to hear about you. Um, so thank you for being on. Well, thanks for having me, Wendy. And if uh, people need to find me, I'm easily findable on LinkedIn. It's slash I-N slash Donnie Weinstein. So D-A-N-I-W-E-I-N-S-T-I-N. Oh, good. Well, you jumped to my last question is where can people find you? So <laughs> that's I'm good. I'm also, uh, also on Twitter, which is uh, Danny Boyce, so D-A-N-I-B-O-Y, triple seven. Okay, good. And then his company is K-A-L-T-U-R-A.com. Definitely worth checking out. So listeners, thanks so much for joining us today. If you know somebody that's thinking about building a community or struggling with getting engagement in theirs, definitely share this episode because it's, it's so important um, to build this and understand how to do it so you've, you feel like you're being successful and not struggling with it. Um, so share the episode and also um, remember to go in and give us a, a, a rating. I've, no, I've noticed that we haven't had much ratings, but our listenership is going up. So if you don't mind doing that, I'd really appreciate it. So we will talk to you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. 
New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.